I'm Christina Rea, and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking In, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands, breaking down all the things that are holding you back, and making great work that gets seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hey, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we are breaking down film school. Or not to film school? If you'd like to suggest an upcoming topic, send us a compliment, ask us a question, or otherwise get in touch, you can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at BreakingOutPod or via email BreakingOutOfBreakingInPod at gmail.com. So let's not putz around at the top here. Uh, film school. So Christina, what's your, what's your educational background? Uh, yeah, so I went to um, Hunter, which is a city university school here in, in Manhattan. I'm not sitting in Manhattan right now. I'm sitting in Queens, but in New York City, it's a Manhattan school specifically. And I have a BA in film production and studies. Was there a concentration at your school? Like, did you concentrate on a particular thing or is it a general degree? It's a general degree. You, It was kind of flexible. Like, you can make your own concentration, but the degree itself was... The same it's always just film production because you had to take all of the core production classes and then your senior year you could do directing you could do writing you could do producing you could do cinematography you could do editing like there was you could go in any concentration you wanted um, and then of course you could get a master's in the specific concentration if that was interesting to you which wasn't to me um, so I did directing and writing pre- predominantly in my in my senior year my so so when it comes to film school I grew up loving movies. I did not know anything about the industry at all from like what I could internet research, whatever Google was then, like Ask Jeeves or something. Uh, Christina, how old are you? (laughs) I'm 31. I don't think Google came around until high school, but maybe I'm making that up. I mean, I know because I remember Ask Jeeves and I remember Yahoo Answers and stuff. Like, certainly I'm not that much younger than you, but like, (laughs) I feel like Google has been around for plenty of time because like YouTube came around in 2005, 2006. And so Google definitely existed before YouTube because they didn't used to be the same company. So for sure. But I'm talking like the year 2000. That when was I, when you were Google, you were Googling I, slash asking yeah, things. Yeah, when I was like 10 or 11, like that sort of time frame. Got it. When I was like, I really want to make movies. What does that mean? <laughs> okay. Um, so you so, asked Jeeves and Jeeves wrote you back. <laughs> he sent you a scroll. Right. He said, well, so what I could gather from like the directors I knew of, which for me was like, I loved Tim Burton, loved Tim Burton movies, and I loved horror movies in general. Um... I didn't know many other directors, but then eventually around middle school started to discover like who the people were, you know, um, like Scorsese, you know, and those kinds of more highbrow (laughs) sort of auteurs, right? I hated Spielberg, but everyone was always like, you want to be Spielberg when you grow up. And it's like, no, I don't. Uh, (laughs) But anyway, this is is, uh, a tangent. But the point is they all went to NYU. This is what I Mm -hmm. gathered from the internet. (laughs) whatever version it was then. And there wasn't much else I could find out. So from my whole childhood into high school, it was like, I need to go to NYU if I want to make movies. And then when I was a junior in high school, at the time, my mom made 50 grand a year. She And most of my childhood, she made way less. But at this point, this was like the peak of her income and it was 50 grand a year. And that and NYU was 40 grand a year. And when I did this like preliminary um, financial aid paperwork, it was basically like you wouldn't get anything <laughs> because you're because your parent makes more than the tuition. And it's like, oh, because $10,000 a year is, is supposed to be enough to live and the rest will just that go towards wild. Yeah. So so I was like, this isn't going to happen. I'm not going to apply. And to be honest, I don't think I would have gotten in because I had good grades, but like I had, I made films like on my little, uh, handy cam. And there's a whole story about how my, my junior year of high school, I sold candy for 11 months to buy a camera and to buy a laptop so that I could start making little films. Um, the reason why I was able to do that is because my school had just gone on a health kick. So they banned all the candy from the vending machines. And so I was like, I had this briefcase that I had candy in. 
that I would like sell to people like I was a drug dealer. It was the whole thing, but it worked. I got both my camera and my laptop. I also went to school with a whole bunch of like privileged upper middle class to sort of rich kids um, who had parents who would just like buy them stuff. So it kind of sucked to be like the poor kid selling them candy, but also they all had a lot of money to spend on candy. But my junior year, I was like, well, what am I going to do if I can't go to NYU? Can I even be a filmmaker if I can't go to the school that you're supposed to go to? So my senior year, I was just sort of like, you know what? I'm not even going to go to college. I'm not even going to, you know, try and study film. I'm just going to try and make movies because I have a camera and, uh, and I can like, I've been shooting stuff as a one person show. And so I actually took a year off after high school and, uh, I started like trying to PA mostly through Craigslist, you know, and like trying to shoot some stuff. And I quickly realized that I didn't know anything. I needed to really learn the technical skills of making a movie beyond just pointing and shooting a camera. And I was having a hard time meeting anyone because it was, this was in 2008. So it was like just brosville. Um, and, and I wasn't really given opportunities even to PA and I was just like a little girl, you know, and that's how I was treated. Um, were and you I, living in the city or were you living um, at home in Long Island? I was living at home on Long Island uh, and I was working part-time, but I, I'm i so glad I took that year because honestly, I needed to learn that. I needed that bit of a reality check for myself, but also I needed to get excited about school again because I was like so over it by the mm-hmm. end of high school. I should also say that I grew up in Long Beach, New York, which is not a small town, but from my perspective, it was a small town. And I just wanted to be in the city. Like I just could sure. not wait to get into the city. And I hated that I was still there. So anyway, I then was like, okay, NYU is not the end of this journey. Like I don't, that doesn't have to be the path that I take. So then I started looking at other schools and I was like, well, all these CUNY schools are you know really like good academically they're just part of the city university and they're cheap as hell if you are a new york resident right they're five grand a year um not that i could like actually even still afford that i (laughs) because my mom was broken i was also this was 2008 when the crash happened so my mom got laid off it was like a whole it was terrible um so anyway i enrolled in hunter and brooklyn uh, there's Brooklyn College and Hunter College um, that are both part of City University and got into both, got a scholarship for both, decided to go to Hunter because I wanted to be in Manhattan because that was like being in New York to me from my perspective. And I got in, enrolled and, and started. And I have to say that, so there's some interesting things like you definitely feel that it's not a big film school, right? Like it was definitely not the NYU's of the world. But I'm so glad that I didn't go to NYU. Not to hate on NYU, it's perfectly fine. I I have a bunch of friends who went there and I love them. But it's definitely a place that I feel like I would have felt so disadvantaged that I maybe would have been like, what's the point? Because I had a, a slow awakening to how incredibly corrupt the industry is and how incredibly not for me it is and had I been surrounded by a bunch of people who were born into the industry and a bunch of rich people who were able to make these huge budgeted shorts that I still to this day do not cannot meet budget wise um, I think I would have just felt like what am I doing you know like do I even stand a chance why even bother whereas at Hunter I was surrounded by a little bit more like working class people it was definitely more diverse. There was a lot of just like what I love about New York City, a lot of commuter, you know, Queens, Brooklyn kids. And we saw a lot of the same professors that NYU had. So like from a, from an education perspective, I was getting a lot of the same. We just had, you know, shittier facilities, not as much funding, over overcrowded classes because it is a public school. Um, Did but, you live on campus? No, I ended up moving into... Queens and I had like a a one bedroom I had a studio apartment for a while and then I had roommates I immediately moved to Queens just because it was it would have been an hour and a half commute from home and it was about like eventually only 20 minutes you know by this because it's on the Upper East Side so like Queens is right there 
Um, yeah, and so honestly, we can go into this more, but from, from my experience, what I got out of it, more than the technical skill, because I think I could have gotten that from like a trade version of film school, but the four-year thing that I got out of it was the analytical aspects of filmmaking. It was like, those are my favorite classes where you just studied film and talked about the themes and the subtext and really like deep diving into the craft and the artistic intentions. That's what I loved about film school that I got out of those classes in addition to meeting my peers who went on to be my collaborators. Those are sort of the two takeaways for me that that I, I loved about my program, but also a lot of it was probably a waste of time too. And we'll talk about that. <laughs> What about you? Yeah, so I, like I talked about in the, the intro episode, I, I came into filmmaking backwards because I didn't want to write description text in prose. <laughs> Everyone was like, you have to. And I was like, what if I just don't? So I became a screenwriter. Um, mm -hmm. So I uh, basically, my high school experience was I, I knew I wanted to be a writer from age five. Like I wrote one short story while I was home from, sick from school. It was called The Little Seed, I think and or some some combination of words that are similar to that and I showed it to my first grade teacher and she was like I love this this is great and like read it to the class and I was like holy shit I am famous and so I rode that high for basically the rest of my school career but w once I got to like middle school I was like okay well I know being a writer is probably going to be really hard. You know, I had very practical parents. They were both physical therapists. They had both gone to in-state schools, uh, very small programs so that they could graduate without debt. Like they're very practical science-based people. And they were like, you, you want to be a writer. Okay. We <laughs> theoretically support that. What the fuck does that mean? And I was like, I don't know. So I started to try and develop other skills that I thought might be more, um, actually monetizable. So at first I was like, maybe I'll be a graphic designer. Cause I liked using Photoshop to Photoshop myself into pictures of Leah Macon, the star of a series of unfortunate events the movie. Um, and then I grew to just really like Photoshop. And then I was like, nah, I'm not really artistic. Like I don't have like that innate sense. I like being creative but I don't have like an innate sense of design that I think you really need if you want to do graphic design and that kind of stuff. So then I was like, okay. Then I joined a speech and debate team. And honestly, speech and debate more than anything else in my life prepared me to be a filmmaker and writer. Um, and it was not even when I was writing speeches was I getting this. It was just learning to talk to people and hearing the different ways people talk to each other and hearing the ways that people disagree and agree and like talk around each other. Like all of that developed my understanding of dialogue and interpersonal communication um, better than any writing class I ever took. So like speech and debate changed my entire life. And I joined because I was like, I like arguing and want to be better <laughs> at it. <laughs> and uh, well, I got better. And it also just taught me like confidence in my own opinions. I could, I had now the capacity to like, look at what someone was saying and realize oh, just because they're well-spoken doesn't mean they're right. And that was a big deal for me. So then my mom was like, you should be a lawyer. So for about six months, I was like, I should be a lawyer. <laughs> and then I was like, actually, that sounds terrible. So I studied creative writing in college. So I went to this little school called Pacific University in uh, Forest Grove, Oregon. It's about half an hour west of Portland. And I, I love the Pacific Northwest. Like my trajectory in this podcast will hopefully be gets very famous, moves to Oregon immediately and commutes out when I need to be on set. <laughs> I, my, my retirement plan is Oregon. That's stop period. Mm -hmm. That's it. I love Oregon. Um, I, so it's a little private liberal arts college. I got a, a couple of financial aid things, but took out a lot of loans. Didn't really think about it. I mean, you know, that's not money I'm spending. It's a thing I'll deal with later. I don't actually even know how many loans I truly took out. Um, because then by the time I was done with my, uh, my undergraduate degree, and moved to screenwriting, I went directly from there. So I didn't take a gap year. I went directly from high school into college and directly from college into graduate school. Yeah. And now I am $98,000 in debt. And that oh is, uh, importantly, more debt than I was in when I ended college because interest accrues. And when you work at startups, you can't make the minimum payments that allow you to even pay off the interest that is accruing. So I, every time I make a payment on my student loans, I get more loans added to the total. Yeah, that is so shitty. Yep. <laughs> That's a big sucks. part of why I didn't go to grad school. I mean, honestly, I also just like, 
I decided to make my first feature my senior year, like the second half of my senior year into after I graduated. And then and then I was just sort of like full steam ahead because I started crowdfunding, talking about crowdfunding, being asked to talk about crowdfunding because I crowdfunded a feature and was on the circuit and whatever. And then and then I was being offered jobs and stuff. So like it never even I never even had the time to carve that out. But also just the cost. Like I personally graduated with twenty twenty one thousand dollars. Um, and that's because I took out the, even though I didn't, I had a scholarship, but I still took out the loans that I could have gotten to pay the five grand tuition, um, because I couldn't afford my fucking rent. Right. So like living in New York, I was working 20 hours a week and going to school full time and trying to pay New York city rent. And so I was just using my loans for, for rent essentially. For living expenses. Yeah. Yeah, I had the option to do that in grad school where when I went and met with my financial aid person, um, who I had to meet like four times because they kept filing my paperwork wrong. So I had to fill out the same paperwork like five times. Every time they were like, well, you, so you're taking out exactly as much for tuition. Do you want a little extra? And I was like, no, this is already so much fucking money. And -hmm. now that I'm an adult, uh, you know, the 22 year old adult that I was, I was like, I'm starting to realize that maybe this was a mistake, but I'm in for, I'm in now I'm Mm -hmm. here. (laughs) But I was like, I'm not going to take out any money for living expenses. Like I, the period of time between college and grad school was like three or four months. I graduated in May. I started in September, but I moved to New York at the beginning of June of 2014. And, um, I moved on that day on June 11th because I had a job interview. I had managed to get a job interview before I had even moved or before I even found an apartment, found an apartment in like a rush in the last three days before my plane left and, uh, started working at a coffee shop. I was a barista for a year and a half, eventually uh, moved up to assistant manager. And that was how I was paying my bills ahead of school starting and ahead of even having loans. So I was like, I mean, my life sucks, but (laughs) at least I'm not accruing loans for this. So I I ended up deciding not to take any extra out, but that was because, you know, I was already in it. Yeah. And I was living in a terrible apartment in Brooklyn with five other roommates and a four bedroom um, and working full time and going to school. It's graduate school, so it was only a, one day a week, just like a full day. So I definitely, like, if I if I had done that in undergrad, I wouldn't have managed it. I only had part-time jobs in undergrad, but by the time I got to graduate school in New York City, I was like, I can't take more loans out. Oh, this looks so apocalyptic. <laughs> and boy, did I not even realize the extent of my mistakes. Yeah. I mean, it's like education shouldn't be a mistake, right? At the end of the day, we, I think every, po- every episode we do, we'll just come back to capitalism and Mm-hmm. it's just the destructive nature of capitalism on yeah. every part of our day-to-day lives yeah a couple things you said so you started writing at five short stories mm-hmm. so did I <laughs> I think that's a fun parallel um I still have some of them and something else you said that I wanted to get back to but I can't remember maybe it'll come back to me though I said we'll a lot I really did say a lot. Yeah. So to talk about my graduate program a little bit. So my MFA is in writing and producing for television. And the way that the program was marketed to me, um, because I didn't actually want to go to grad school. Like when I was working towards my senior thesis in my undergrad, all of my professors were like, so what are you doing next? And I was like, oh, I'm going to be a barista and write novels on the side. That was still my plan up until nearly (laughs) the end. And all of my teachers were horrified. They were like, no, you have to have science. You, you get good grades. You're good at school. What are you doing? Um, and so one of them floated grad school and I was like, I'm not going to grad school. I'm done with school. Uh, and then by the time I, I was getting into like television writing, I did a lot of research. Um, Jeeves had retired sadly, but I asked Google. Um, and uh, the basically the ways that I could figure out were the ways to get into television writing were to apply for those like fellowships, like the Writers on the Verge, NBC fellowship and stuff like that. Or they had listed like two or three graduate programs that were specifically for television writing because most graduate programs aren't. There's like four maybe graduate degrees specifically in television writing, not just like screenwriting. And I didn't want to take screenwriting. I didn't want to write movies. I wanted to write TV. And one of the programs was USC, but to apply, you had to pay a thousand dollars in like application fees. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I'm not I don't know, $1,000 to apply to your film program? How dare you? So then LIU, LIU Brooklyn, which is the school I ended up going to, uh, did not have that kind of a fee. And I was like, well, I guess I'll try that. And so I just applied out of on a whim. And then I got in and I was very excited. I like burst into tears when the 
program director called me to tell me, you know, about six or seven months ahead of when I actually moved to New York. I since learned a little bit more about the circumstances that were slightly less exciting. But at the time, the guy that co-wrote Blazing Saddles with Mel Brooks was calling me on the phone to tell me I was in his graduate program, Norman Steinberg. And that, you know, those are a couple of names that were important. Blazing Saddles was the first movie I ever watched with my now fiance. So like... (laughs) I even had that going for me. But the program itself was billed as like, it's not really a traditional graduate program, which already appealed to me because I didn't want to go to school. It was billed as like writer's room experience. Like you are going to join a writer's room and you're going to write a bunch and you're going to actually develop a show with your classmates. And in the second year of the program, because it was a two-year program, you're going to produce an episode or produce a sizzle. I don't, they might've said produce an episode at the time, but what they actually meant was that we were going to produce like a 10 to 11 minute sizzle reel version of the pilot that we all wrote together. So it was, it was very writing focused. We were going to meet a lot of industry people and it was going to be very like on the job training style. And I was like, that sounds like exactly what I'm looking for. Not exactly what I got. (laughs) It's gotten better uh, because what I didn't, the things that I didn't realize when I first applied to this program was first, I was cohort five, which means they're the first graduated class of this program had just graduated by the time that I got into the program. So there was no alumni network. This was a brand new program and it existed for three and a half years at this Mm -hmm. point. So that should have (laughs) been a little bit of a red flag because not to say that new programs are bad, but like it was still finding itself, you know, they were still figuring it out. The other things, because it was such a new program and because it was such an under like non, non popular school, like Long Island university, Brooklyn, who, who is that? There weren't actually that many people applying. So when they said on their website, we only accept up to like 20 to 25 students a year. What that meant was, we get like maybe 30 applications. <laughs> so my being selected maybe wasn't the most special thing in the world. I think that what I submitted was great, but you know, was it very competitive? I don't think so. <laughs> but finally, and this is something that I don't know if I would have known prior to applying, but something that certainly became evident afterwards was I, the, the way that they branded it was like, you know, on the job training, which meant that most of the people who were teaching weren't teachers. Like some of them had had occasional teaching experience, but most of the people that I would be working with and who were my professors were like industry people who, you know, agreed to teach a one day a week class. And that actually does make a difference, especially now that I do teaching, like the difference between someone who's used to being a boss and someone who's used to being an instructor is very, very different. And when you're trying to learn something a boss isn't always the vibe that you need to go with because you are trying to like figure stuff out. You're not trying to increase output and like those goals to get out of a class are kind of against each other, especially when you have so many newbies who are all there to just like learn. And that was a struggle because it made for a very disorganized program, at least while I attended it, because they, you know, they've, they've made a lot of changes since I went there. Now I now teach at that program. Actually, I teach the class that I originally developed my first project in, but it was just, it was very disorganized because we were, we were, you know, 16 writers who had totally different writing styles, but we were considered the same writer's room and we were all writing a thing that none of us actually wanted to write. It got assigned to us, but no one was in charge because at the time that I attended, there wasn't a showrunner. Mm-hmm. Like the whole point of a writer's room is somebody is in charge and everyone else gives ideas and works on their own stuff. But in our program, they like at first didn't want to have a showrunner because they were like, we want you to run this room. But what that means is that everyone has an equal voice. So nothing ever gets done. Basically, we spent the first four months of our graduate program yelling at each other in a classroom because no one was in charge and could say, no, we've made this decision. We have to move on. Because as soon as one person wasn't happy with the decision, well, we had to litigate everything again. Mm. And it was just very frustrating. And we lost, I think, six people. Like by the time we actually graduated, six to seven people had quit the program at some point because they were just so frustrated by the process. (laughs) Yeah, it it was a lot. I got a lot out of it, but not academically is what I will say about my particular grad school experience Hmm. yeah I mean I can't speak to grad school but I do think out of my program I was taught a lot of like Hollywood system and like old studio system stuff it was like what does that mean a lot of just like film history really just and and what cameras like technical stuff and then just actually how the studio system used to work and 
how it changed, but it was a lot of just like, here's what it was when it started and here's how Hollywood movies are made and here's how you technically make a film, but that connecting piece of like, how do you actually become a filmmaker? How do you become a working filmmaker? <laughs> how do you find any sort of like path towards success and or sustainability like whatever mm -hmm. that means to you none of that was in that program at all and so I don't think it's in most programs yeah. like even mine it was like oh yeah you know we're gonna help you get staffed but like everyone who was teaching by that point they were in the industry but they had been in the industry you know in like 30 years ago mm -hmm. so all of their connections were retired or making shows that like none of us were interested in making not that they weren't good but it's like I that's that's not the kind of stuff that I want to make and so like even the couple of connections that we technically had were pretty limited and even that you know you can't promise everyone in your grad program a job but yeah. you you know if all the people you're meeting are like 30 40 year veterans and they're like oh yeah you you got to go to LA to meet people and you're going to grad school in Brooklyn it's sort yeah. of like what are we doing here? Yeah. I mean, even when I think about this, the stuff I teach now and, and the skills that I have now, none of that really came from school. It came from my own like need to hustle, you know? Mm -hmm. When I think about making my own stuff, I remember there was a, a kid in one of my classes who was running a Kickstarter campaign in late 2010. And Kickstarter, I think, mm -hmm. has been around since 2009 and really, like, no one had heard of it. When he when he showed me the page, I was like, I don't know what this is. And he had launched it for $5,000 and was like, oh, I'm just going to see if I can get the money. And if I can't, like, you know, I, I'll i pay for it myself because my, my dad has money. Like, it was basically one of those situations. And I was like, oh, interesting. You're just, like, putting it up online and maybe strangers will give you money. Why would they do that? And he failed, like he didn't get anything. But I started diving really deep into Kickstarter's site and I was like, some of these are succeeding and some of them are succeeding really big. Like, why is that? Is it just because they know rich people or what's the deal? And I just started to realize that there's like a way in which you can build an audience online, right? And that opened doors for me. If I didn't if that experience didn't happen and ha as early as it did, and if I didn't like take it upon myself to really study the campaigns and be like, this one failed, why did it fail? This one succeeded, why did it succeed? Uh, I would not be here. Like I probably don't even know if I'd be making films, right? Because that that gave me a whole new avenue to to making stuff. And I had peers who were like, I'm gonna get into Sundance and you know, I'm gonna do like the artist path of like getting being a festival darling and then getting mm -hmm. like noticed. And it's like how that's not a strategy, that's not something you can plan for. Right. And even if you could, it's so the odds are against you. Even if you remove bias from the equation, which is sort of impossible to do, but even if you could do that, just from a numbers perspective, the odds are so against you. Um and I was like putting myself online and people were like, that's not what filmmaking is. That's not what you do with movies. And I was like, well, people are fucking watching it, you know, <laughs> like, it's <laughs> not the point. Like, yeah. I, I, we, we don't make movies so that rich people notice us. We make movies because we want people to love our movies. Right. And I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to tell them now. I, you know, st filmmaking for me is like no one project is too precious that I have to like wait years to make it. I, I, I'm all about just like getting it made so I can get it seen when it's most relevant and when it feels most necessary to me because to some degree filmmaking is like therapy, you know, where I just totally. like I'm trying to process something specific and get it out there, but also put together something entertaining for people to relate to. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, so like, when I think about film school, I didn't, it wasn't very practical, right? Which is yeah. part of why we're doing this podcast, because there isn't mm -hmm. a lot out there that's practical. It's a lot of like, here are just the way things are. And here are mm -hmm. some success stories. And like, mm -hmm. but the success stories almost always skip over the connecting tissue that yeah. you mentioned was missing, which is, I went to film school. And then like, mysteriously, seven years later, I was at Sundance. And it's like, right. well, what happened in those seven years? Let's talk about that. Right, right. I don't know, like, I personally have never submitted to Sundance, which some people are like, what's wrong with you? But it's a 100 bucks, you know, <laughs> and like, yeah, it's not a cheap festival. Right. And you have to you have to feel like you have enough. There's no one that gets into Sundance that doesn't have some sort of connection, whether it's like six degrees away. But 
there's always something at play. There's someone who put in a good word or something like that. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have any of that, I think it's a waste of money. But some people may disagree. And, you know, I'd love to have those people on the podcast to say that. But yeah, have you gotten into Sundance? (laughs) Come on our podcast. Yeah, yeah. especially without any connections, like for real and without, you Mm -hmm. know, a huge budget. That's just like and names. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, cuz something to think about is like I think the thing that people get wrong about like film festivals is that like if you make a good film, you deserve it, but like there's so much that goes into the considerations of what is good for a film festival and also yeah. what each film festival is specifically looking for. Yeah. You can make a great film that's not right for Sundance. That's right. And so like using Sundance as your like north star doesn't really make sense unless you're making the type of films that Sundance cares about and also have like eight connections to them I teach a distribution workshop where this just like comes up so just come take that because that's like yeah we could go on hang around for a couple episodes yeah we'll talk about film festivals soon guys don't you worry you said your parents were like how are you going to make a living and you want Mm -hmm. to do something practical and something I am really happy about that I did in in school um particularly my BA was that I minored in psychology. Hmm. So like when I was a kid, I, I had, my mom was always like, I work so hard so that you can do something you love because she didn't have that passion. Right. And she didn't have that privilege to like pursue a passion. She just had to make ends meet. So I definitely wrestle and I still wrestle with like the guilt. I think anyone who has like an immigrant parent relates to the guilt of like, you need to take care of your parents when they're older, Mm -hmm. right? So you have to do something practical so that they can like retire because what they do is probably not something they can retire on or whatever, which is definitely the case for my mom. But also this isn't maybe such an immigrant thing. It's, it's more my mom thing, which is that working and hating it (laughs) would also be like a betrayal to how hard she worked so that I didn't have to do that, right? So those are two things that I wrestle with. But anyway, growing up, I had extended family that would say, like, you can't, making movies is not a thing. Like, it's not real. It's a Hollywood thing. There are, like, old, rich, white men who do that, but it's not for you. So what are you actually practically going to do? And one of the things I would sometimes say as a lawyer, too, because I also liked to argue and had opinions, I also just really loved the movie Liar, Liar. (laughs) Mm, see for me it was a few good men that's what really did it for me Mm. I was like a huge Jim Carrey just kid who loved to do impressions like him and stuff a lot of the like performeriness that I loved as a kid has is not in me as an adult but I it all is in my writing but anyway uh that was like a while a phase but really psychology was the thing that always interested me because I love just like what makes people people what makes them behave the way they do and I had like pretty traumatic you know experiences growing up and there's sort of my mom and just like a lineage of trauma that I have always been kind of interested in Um, and so psychology was always there and I think it informed my writing like studying it for my minor but also it allowed me to get my first job out of college like first real job which was as an instructor for a mobile film workshop that was using filmmaking as uh, art therapy for veterans that were struggling with PTSD. And that, I don't think, like I would not have gotten that job if I didn't have this mix of film, like practical film experience and the knowledge to make a movie with the psychology and understanding of like what we were working towards with people. Totally. Yeah. My minors in undergrad were integrated media and editing and publishing. Editing and publishing, I don't think did a lot for me other than I I think I was like one class away when they added the minor and I was like, hell yeah, I'll do double minor. But integrated media was really great because it was building off of my childhood love of Photoshop and my preteen love of the internet and like web design and like internet structures and like things like that. And that actually has gotten me a lot of my work in startups because a lot of what I do at these various <laughs> startup companies is I'm, I'm sort of like the jack of all trades where I do some website design. Like I have, I, I have enough understanding of the underlying mechanics of websites from my integrated media minor. Cause I like, I had to code, you know, basic websites from scratch and stuff like that. So I have a basic understanding so that I can kind of talk engineer when I need to talk to like the engineers and the product people. But I also have like the social understanding of like the social internet and social media. And like, I bit, I was an early adopter of like all social medias cause I was really interested in that. And I understand the design and business side of it so that, you know, I, I get why something is good on one place versus another and I like 
learning new things about the internet and ways to manage the internet so it's not quite so toxic as a lot of people unfortunately experience it and so that gave me an edge because I wasn't just a writer and like writing being a good writer will get you a lot of jobs but being a good writer with also a niche sort of new media interest has gotten me basically every job I've ever gotten it's allowed me to work in startups because there is a the like the media tech part of a media tech startup like both of those aspects are important And it also allowed me to pick up a lot of like freelancing along the way because everyone always needs someone who vaguely understands web design, you know, or vaguely understands like the social internet. So I used to do a lot of like social media consulting and like I would copyright and I would do UI design and I would, I I understood enough. I wasn't an expert at any of it because I was only a minor in integrated media, but I understood enough that I could get in the door in a lot of places and set myself apart from just someone who was good at writing but also had these other like little niche things. Yeah, great. I think, you know, something that will probably come across a lot in our episodes is that you have to have multiple ways of making money and having different mm-hmm. revenue streams. And like yes. and the people that are managing to like make work and pay their bills are probably kind of similar to us in that in that way. Yeah, you find other stuff that isn't like the love of your life in terms of work, but mm-hmm. is stuff that you wouldn't mind doing more of. And that's certainly been the case for me. Like, and sometimes it's easy to kind of get swept up in that. Like I've definitely gotten swept up in sort of the magic of like, you know, I work for a company, I have to help them succeed. And then, you know, I'll wake up one day and I'm like, wait, I'm miserable. I'm doing none of the things that I actually came into this job to do. And like, this is, I'm not talking about, I'm not like, subtweeting anyone this has happened at every job I've ever had even when I was a barista like this would happen where like you know I'd want to be helpful so I'd help out on a job that I hated you know but like Mm -hmm. somebody had to do it and I'm you know I got moxie so I would fill in the role but then eventually if you become the person who will just do whatever because you want to be a team player even though it's not your passion and you knew that it wasn't your passion to begin with you know you're not looking to for upward momentum at this particular job. It's just what you're doing before your filmmaking career takes off. But eventually you'll discover that your career that you are building is in a totally different industry and skill set than what you actually want to do. And you have to remind yourself like, okay, do I want to pursue this? Because if so, that's going to take a lot of different kinds of energy and I might need different training so that I'm not just tangentially tangentially okay at this stuff, but like that it's my focus. And I, for me, so far, it has been, oh no, I actually don't want to do these eight things that I've started doing out of necessity and having to kind of recenter what my priorities are and what I actually want to be doing with my day to day because and this is a, probably a, a theme that will be running through a lot of these podcast episodes for both of us. I don't want my day-to-day to be miserable because I think in 10 years I'll be happy. Yep. And I have to remind myself that a lot. <laughs> like that's something that like every six months I'll wake up in the morning and I'll be like, shit, I'm doing it again. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's an active effort, but I am grateful uh, to the education that I got and the people that I met through it so that I at least have enough going on that I can pay my bills, but also enough perspective over my own interests and passions that I don't let myself get sucked into capitalism for the sake of capitalism. I, I consider myself very lucky that way. Totally. Yeah. So let's talk about, I guess, what are like, what are the, like the pros and cons? What are, what are our takeaways what are common things we hear? I mean, yeah. cons is student loans and the yes. fact that if you're working in this industry, unless you get famous immediately, which you can't plan for, so don't tell me that's your plan, uh, you're going to be in debt forever. Like, I've kind of just gotten used to the fact that I will always have a certain amount of money less a month because it'll go to loans. Like, I just mm-hmm. count that as money I didn't earn. Like, yeah. that's just not my money. Um, and I just, I'm in such crushing debt that it, like, I literally don't know how I will ever pay it off. Um, unless I get tremendously wealthy and famous. So I have just resigned myself to the fact that I will always be in debt. And luckily, student debt acts differently in terms of like your, you know, net worth and like ability to get loans and get a mortgage and stuff like that. You know, student debt is considered different than like credit card debt. So that's, I guess, useful. Mm -hmm. But it's also a thing that will always be over my head. And that is hard. Yeah. I mean, I only have, like I said, 20. It started at 20 and now as, as yours has has gone up because interest right um, and I deferred it for like a good seven years after I graduated before I actually started wow. paying it um, but 
it's lower, it's like significantly lower than yours and lower than most people's, but it still feels really crushing. I had an internship when I was a senior in college with this woman who went to NYU for film and realized her senior year that she didn't even really want to be a filmmaker, but she now had $200,000 in student loans. Oh my God. And I was just like, oh That's like my med God. school level debt. Yeah, yeah. Yikes. Because at that point it had gone up, I believe, to 50 a year. Or maybe she was taking out a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I couldn't imagine that. It's sort of like, what's the point of anything, <laughs> you know, when you have that much? But also, you know, hopefully, I don't know. I wanted to say it's something. It's just another utility. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, maybe like a post-COVID world, people will start to see some real progress. Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely have seen it because I've continued to do my automatic payments, but I don't think that they're accruing interest right now. Uh, thanks, not. Trump. Yeah. Um, so like maybe I'll uh, postpone how much more <laughs> money is added by for a couple of months. That's an exciting prospect. Yeah. Something I do want to go back to really quickly, though, in terms of like takeaways is something that you mentioned earlier um, about like you get out of it what you put in. So like you mentioned, you put together your first feature in your final um, year and you crowdfunded for it early mm -hmm. on and had done a lot of research. And for me, I had a similar experience in grad school where by the end of my first semester, I realized that the like the academics that I was used to, because I loved my writing program in undergrad, my undergrad writing professors, I am still in touch with, they were truly the best mentors and writing teachers that I could have asked for. That wasn't the same experience I was having. I loved the people, but I wasn't getting the same like academic structure that I was used to in graduate school. So I decided to give it to myself. So I made my own sort of assignments. And the thing that I got out of graduate school was my web series Brains. Mm -hmm. And we'll probably talk about this a lot more in other episodes, but I wanted to talk about it because I knew, uh, I like had read the full two-year syllabus when I, I first got accepted into the program. And I saw that the second semester of my first year, we would have a digital media class, which is the class that I now teach. And we would be developing a web series in it. So it didn't say a lot about like what that meant specifically, but I wrote the entire season, first season of my web series, the fall before that class actually started. So I had already written the thing that I was going to make for that class. Cause I was like, that sounds like something I can do. And I've never tried it before, but I had like started to get into web series. Like Lizzie Bennett diaries had just come out. And that was like, I loved Pride and Prejudice already, and I loved YouTube vloggers, so it was just sort of like the Venn diagram of everything I was interested in that time, and also seemed attainable, mm -hmm. and like something that I could actually accomplish, even with my complete lack of film understanding. Um, so I was really excited about that class, and then that class ended up not being at all what I expected, but because I came in with like, no, this is what I'm going to do, I not only produced the pilot, which I had to do for class anyways, but I got some of my friends from that class to say, actually, you've written this whole series season. We should, we should make this whole season. And over the course of the summer between my first and second years of grad school, I filmed the first 10 episodes of my web series, uh, the complete first season and started releasing it in the fall of my second year. And, you know, it's my first web series. It's a found footage web series. There's a lot wrong with it from a technical perspective. And I, you know, lost a lot of friends as a result of working on it because I didn't know what I was doing and none of us really did. And there was a lot of other stuff going on that year, but nothing has changed the course of my life more than making that one web series over the summer of 2015. Yeah. Like, I met every single collaborator as a result of it, both directly from my classmates who had had more traditional film backgrounds who taught me a lot and also introduced me to their friends who were, you know, more traditional filmmakers. And then as a result of networking in the web series space online, I met a bunch of new collaborators just from the web series sphere because I had my own and I, I had a, a piece of the puzzle that, you know, we were all trying to make together. And like, even though that little web series it, in and of itself is probably not going to age well just on a technical level and so many other levels. The fact that I made it and I decided to make it and I went 
all out with it. I submitted it to every film festival possible. I think I might have even submitted it to Sundance. I, I don't know if Sundance has a category for it, but I submitted it to a lot of places. Mm-hmm. And I made every possible mistake I could have mm-hmm. made on that web series. And because I had to, because it was in my course curriculum, and because I met enough people who sort of knew about filmmaking, it is the entire reason that I am here. So yeah. I regret the immense amount of debt that I am in, but I I can't regret going to grad school because... Yeah, I think, right, it's all like the seeds that you plant and how mm-hmm. you how you kind of navigate what, what you find. Yeah, because I didn't have to do that. Most people in my class didn't end up doing anything with their web series. One of my classmates who now is the co-host of my other podcast with me made a, a full season of, of her web series and a couple other people tried to make a couple other episodes, but we were the only two that actually continued and it did a lot for us because mm-hmm. we decided to, not because we had assigned it, not because anyone else told us we needed to, but because we were like, I'm obsessed with this story. Let's do this together. Let's figure it out. Right. The thing that I think you get out of film school or, or really any kind of school environment, especially in this industry, is collaborators, is like mm-hmm. the ability to watch talent grow and find the people you connect with that you're on the same page with. And there's like uh, space to do that. There's time and space to do that when where there isn't if you just sort of jump into to filmmaking. And so totally. like that's something that I hear a lot. People who didn't go to film school, you know, we have film screening at festivals together the same way I have film screening at festivals with NYU students who have like huge budgets, bigger budgets than I do. We're all at the end of the day sitting like standing on the same stage often, you know, screening our films for the same audience. It's just so it's not to say that you can't do it without film school, especially when we're talking about technical skills. There are there are sites like no film school that you can kind of Mm -hmm. start to teach yourself or watch YouTube tutorials or just go beyond a set and like shadow and then eventually get your hands on. But the thing that I think school gives you is the space to find the people, right? And your people. Like all of my production company is almost completely made up of people that I met in school. Kelsey Rauber and Ryan Kramer, I met them both in writing classes. Ryan was in a screenwriting 101 class that I was in and it was like 20 other people and we had to read pages from each other's scripts every week and he was one of the few where I was like this kid is talented like I like his writing a lot and I initiated a conversation with him because I recognized talent and I wanted to like collaborate or just know someone who I thought was a good writer and similarly Kelsey we met in a tv writing class and we had to do pitches on the first day and I thought her pitch was really funny we had similar senses of humor and and that like evolved into now what is my closest collaborative relationship even Matt Gershowitz who's my go-to editor and AD had made a film my first film which we'll probably talk about at some point in an episode it was a short and I had hired a friend who wanted to do sound but didn't know anything about sound and we had terrible sound so I had to ADR the whole thing and I was like I don't even know where to begin here so I just went to the school radio station and I was like you have a recording booth and Matt was like the guy sitting at the desk and he was like that sounds fun sure let's do that and like now we're collaborating years later and so and even like collaborators that have been brought on that I didn't meet through school came through knowing a lot of them or them knowing people who knew people and then it's just like a spread out right and so I think that's like what you really get out of it is like you find people that are at your level that you can grow with mm-hmm. and ideally you know you obviously will drop some people along the way because it wasn't a right fit but mm-hmm. if you find the right people you start to like for me at least lock them into those roles and they're your go-to people and you're their go-to person for whatever and it just becomes like a family unit where you can all grow together and it makes I think it makes making it in this industry a lot easier because you're not starting from scratch every time you know like you you, and you you know at least one person who probably knows at least one person yeah yeah and you know how to like you can probably work for cheaper like get them to work for cheaper because you work for cheaper that's something that is a reoccurring thing with the people I've Mm -hmm. grown with you know they cost a lot more for other people than 
than they do for me. Same with me for them. And you start to get like a kind of like, we're kind of like a well-oiled machine on set, right? Like we know how we all engage with different things. We know what our moods are going to be like at the time of day that we're starting. Like we know, <laughs> we just know how to work together. So it's just like smooth, smooth, smooth. We make our days. We always make our days. That's something actors, new actors who come on our sets are always like, people say it's only going to be six hours and I expect it to be 12, you know? Mm -hmm. Like I, when they put my wrap time at this hour, I'm like, yeah, right, well, let me plan to get out of here actually four hours later. But like actors consistently are like, you guys actually make your your days and like that's amazing. Um, and that comes from experience. That comes from like one shoot where we worked people for 18 hours straight and I was like, never again will I ever do that to people. We need to do better and be better. And then we... Mm -hmm. We did, right? So anyway, that's like something we're going to talk about in our next episode is like, how do you then navigate finding those people if you didn't go to film school? Totally. Yeah. And yeah, I I can trace most of the people who have I've worked on sets with either to the two people that I am still in touch with from my graduate program, uh, Chris and Andrew. And then as a result of this work that the three of us did together, every other person I've ever met or worked with, I've met as a result of the things that we made together that I then put out into the world and talked to about other people. Like it literally, it's all come down to brains. Like those are the two people who decided like we have enough film experience between the two of us and you have a great idea and are very organized. We can do this. And like, it is insane that we did it. My first web series is a 10 episode web series. Each episode is between like five and eight minutes long. And it's an ensemble zombie found footage series. What the was I thinking like <laughs> I would never film that series today I would never deign to say I want to have five main cast members and a whole fleet of extras and zombie makeup and zombie stunts and the occasional special effect that none of us know how to do and we're going to make 10 uh, well in the end we made 30 episodes of it plus two spinoffs I would never do that today because I, I am cursed with knowledge of how hard it is but the three of us were like we like this story. We like working together. This seems fun. Why not? And I don't think I would have done that outside of film school because like there were, you know, I wouldn't have met the two of them definitely. And the fact that they had gone to film school was very useful to me because I didn't know the technical side of things, but I knew sort of the emotional, like interpersonal side of like how to, you know, be a leader, like from speech and debate and stuff like that. I learned a lot about being a leader, but on that set, film school was what kind of brought us together. So like, I don't know if I would recommend other people go to film school, but pay attention to the people who are in film school and try yeah. to find, if you don't go to film school, get a friend who went to film school and that let them, you know, take the burden of the student loans and the meeting people. And as soon as you meet one person who went to film school, you know, the entire film industry. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, <laughs> we're going to touch on this more in the next episode, but at the end of the day, it's like compensating for the fact that you're not being put in a room with a bunch of people who want to find collaborators too. Right. So like, yeah. then you have to find another way to get in rooms like that. That's what it totally. comes down to. Yeah, I think if you're deciding on whether or not to go to film school because of this podcast episode, what I would say high level, since we're trying to wrap up, I know Christina <laughs> keeps trying to wrap it up and I'm like, but I want to talk about brains more. Um, I would say if somebody asked me undergrad, let's let's start with undergrad. If they want to go to undergrad film school, I would say like your consideration should be what is the alumni network? which is something that I wish I'd looked at because like, because so much of this industry is who you know, certainly lateral networking is important, but alumni networks can do a lot for you. So if there is a strong alumni support network, that is a reason to go to that school because then you're in that fraternity for life, essentially. So that is really important if you want to make connections. Add to that real quick. Like that is one example where, you know, if you can afford it, if it makes sense getting into and going to an NYU or, or UCLA. Yeah, exactly. You, USC. Right. You have an alumni network that probably knows programmers at Sundance and can put in a good word for your student film that you're submitting, right? And so when you look at those films that get in and it's like, my film is just as good, and not to say that that one isn't good, but why do they have this advantage? It is so much about connections in this industry, and that is where a specific kind of film school can definitely be a big benefit if, if it yes. makes sense for you. But again, it's like weighing your personal pros and cons because it would not have made sense for me to pursue it. Um, even if I could get in, would not have made sense for me to pursue it on a financial level. I would be in a very totally. different place, you know? 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, so the, but definitely an alumni network is a consideration. I would say the other consideration is like, what are you looking to get out of it? If you're just looking to learn technical skills, if you're someone who, like I was at the beginning, was like, well, I don't know how to use a camera or what cinematography is and how to do good. Like, if that's all you're looking for, you don't need to pay for film school. Like, YouTube exists. Like, there mm-hmm. are YouTube <laughs> tutorials on basically anything or you can pay for like a you know a master class or something like it is not hard to learn this I learned video editing because I made YouTube videos where I you know had banal uh, observations about being a white high school teenager you know but like (laughs) I learned video editing from that and because my first web series was a found footage YouTube vlogger web series I already knew how to do that And so my film school experience comes from me being a whiny teenager. So like the technical skills are not something you need to pay other people for. Certainly not pay film school prices for. But, But if what you're looking for out of film school is like experience and just the ability and the space to experiment and have access to people and a lot of equipment that you can like learn on the go with film school is great for that because if it has a film program they have some kind of like for rent equipment exclusively for students and you have an entire campus of places that you are legally allowed to film no matter who like what time it is and you have a ton of people and all of your best friends are living within two blocks of you or maybe two feet of you depending on what kind of dorm situation that you've got going so everyone is just there and has access to all of this stuff and probably a lot more free time than they're ever going to have for the rest of their life and if you want to just make a bunch of stuff and meet a ton of people all at once film school is going to be great for that yeah and also if I can add feedback Um, something that I don't think you get in the real world. Like you go to a film festival and people are just polite. If they don't like it, they're not going to say anything. They're not going to come over and give you constructive criticism, but you Mm -hmm. get that in school. And I, that was so incredibly helpful to me. It made me, it gave me thicker skin, right? Which you really have to have in this industry because you're going to get rejected a lot. It gave me like a framework of how to judge certain criticisms. It's like, oh, this is coming from a personal bias versus this is coming from like a real place of craft that I should take in and it just like gave me the environment of like let me try it and see how it translates because Mm -hmm. I don't think you really get that by just diving in that's part of why I started India Works which is a monthly screening series I run in New York we screen short films and we have like really um, engaged and thoughtful Q&A's where we ask about like intentions and craft and we analyze because I loved that about film school but most festivals and most environments where you can like show your work you don't actually get that but there are places like you know film shop is in new york and new orleans and that's an example of like kind of a a meetup that gives you that film school experience yeah it's the structure really that you're looking for yeah yeah so structure you can create for yourself like my fiance has had the same writers group since he was in college and like he didn't need to go to college with them necessarily to have a writers group but like they maintained their writers um, structure their thesis group structure for nine years today is their nine year anniversary of being a writer's group and all of them live in different states but they like clockwork meet every two Sundays and they have a you know three to five hour day where they have like sent each other assignments and they do little like sprints and like everyone come in with like a, a micro short story on the subject of you know, missing your mom you know I, <laughs> I'm not sure what their actual topics are but like they are they they decided that what they liked was having consistent feedback and consistent things to be working on, even if it wasn't something that they were going to submit anywhere. And they keep their schedule and have been doing so for nine years. And they like the, the level of discipline there is incredible to me. I wouldn't be able to maintain that outside of a film environment. So if that's something that's true for you and you have a hard time either A, creating discipline and structure for yourself or B, don't have other friends who are disciplined and structured, then film school will give that to you because, you know, you have deadlines, you have grades and all of that kind of stuff. And that I know is very helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. And and then finally, I would say only go to film school and certainly only go to film grad school if you want to teach. If you don't want to teach, don't go to grad school. (laughs) Like I did that accidentally. But there is no reason that you need to go to grad school unless you want to teach, because in the arts, you're not learning anything so substantially new that it's a worth the money and be worth being able to say, I have an MFA in writing and producing for television because nobody Mm -hmm. gives a shit. I'm not ever going to write and walk into a writer's room and like say that. And they're going to be like, oh, yes, well, you are clearly more qualified. Nobody cares about your degree unless, again, you go to an NYU or something like that. But in that case, you're not going because you want the degree. You're going because you want the like entry into the fraternity of NYU grads. And that's different. 
Yeah, I think also like keep an eye on how things change because I've been invited to teach at at schools and I didn't go to grad school. So if you get like known for a specific thing, you know, being having accomplished a certain specific thing in the field, you may find that people want you to just come teach a class about that thing in particular because you're an expert on it and that's undeniable, right? Um, Absolutely. And so... Yeah. yeah, in the arts, credits is like, a, a you know, actual credits of things that you do are way more important than your degree. That's not true for every industry, obviously. Yeah. But in the artistic industry, almost no one is going to care about your degree. And the only time they maybe a little bit care about it is your school experience. But like Christina said, it's absolutely not requirement. Yeah, I think that's it. Unless we have anything we want to add. I, I think we I think we covered everything. Great. Well, we would like to say, let me find my script. I've <laughs> minimized it. We would like to say thank you to Kelsey Rauber for our theme music and Kaylee Brown for our podcast art and to all of you for listening. You can find more about Kelsey at KelseyRauber.com and more from Kaylee at KayleeChristina.com. Links, as always, are in our episode description. And if you haven't already, remember to subscribe to our podcast so you get notified of all of our new episodes dropping every other Thursday. Except in October when they will be weekly every Thursday. And rate us five stars if you haven't already. We know if you haven't already, and we're very (laughs) disappointed in you. Next episode, episode two, we will be joined by filmmaker Micah Kahn covering how to find your team, even if you didn't go to film school. So uh, be sure to tune into that. And until next time, have a nice two weeks, everyone. (laughs) Bye.